Loving Father, we come to you. God, we come to you as one, even though often we feel divided, even during this season of election, during this season of pandemic, where we all think maybe we'd handle it a little bit differently than the person next to us. Father, we want to come as one because we know you are the giver of all good things. Your word tells us that in you there's not even a trace of of turning, of changing, and therefore you are the father of goodness who rains down mercies on your children. Father, we we know we've seen this in the past with your people Israel, how you've brought them through many difficulties, trials and temptations, even through wilderness and death. And we know that you rain down on them good things in spite of their actions towards you. And we, your people, come to you asking you for good things because we know it pleases you. Father, we, we think of the devastation that the wildfires have brought. This good thing that you've created to bring warmth and energy has brought devastation in this sin-cursed world. And there are those among us who, who know people or who have been displaced by these fires and evacuated or lost all that they have. And we just look to you, O oh God, We know that you don't always answer our questions of why, but we look to you and we ask you to be what those folks need. Supply their needs, oh God. We ask that you would help us to be the people of God who go out to those in need. We thank you, Father, for protecting the firefighters, even among us, like Simon Rodriguez. We thank you for how you've cared for him as he spent 61 days fighting fires. God, we, we know that's a good gift from you. We know that, God, even the, uh, the first responders and doctors and nurses among us who give their lives to care for the, the human bodies of people and their their well-being, we, we know that's a gift from you as well. So we thank you for them. We ask that you'd give them grace as they, as, they minister, as they are ministers of you in the hospitals and, and, and different wards where they are. I pray that you'd give them grace and, and opportunities to, to, to be Christ to others. I pray that the gospel would be, be known by them. Father, we, we uh, also ask that you would be with those in our government. We think of our mayor, Biff Traber, and our governor, Brown. We pray that you would help them to govern in wisdom and in equity and in righteousness. We ask that you would help them surround themselves with people who, who would do, help them do these things. Oh, Lord, let them turn to you for salvation. And we ask that even during this election season, um, that God, you as, would help us as a church to unite on what is most important, and that is the gospel in Christ Jesus. Father, we ask that you would meet with us this morning. All is vain unless you meet with us. You have said in your word, the the builders who build, they build in vain unless you are the Lord of the house. So we ask that you would meet with us in a very special way. As your people were gathered to worship you, even through the hearing and doing of your word, we ask that by your spirit, you would open our, our minds to understand, open our hearts to believe. So open us to your word and open your word to us, we pray. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer and the one who unites us. In Christ's name, amen. So one announcement before we get started with the sermon, and that is community groups. I've had several people ask me what's going on with community groups. I'm really excited about 
the, uh, the plan for community groups. So let me just explain it real fast and encourage you to sign up for one. So it's a little different this year in that we'll be meeting weekly, uh, but in those weeks we'll be doing something called table talks, and then we'll have teaching. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be uh, a... Uh, Every group has their own topic they'll be working through. So, for example, Davey will be working through biblical theology. My group will be working through uh, living as the church. And there are five other groups. And, and you, if you got the email this week, you'll know what those are. Um, and, and so we'll be working through that content twice a month. And then the other two times a month, we'll be doing a table talk. That is having an intentional meal together, sharing our story and an intentional conversation of, of how we can build each other up in the faith. And so uh, the leaders will be meeting this afternoon and, and, and talking about how it's going to go this year and what are the questions and, and how we'll meet. So part of the reason we're doing this is we don't know what's going to happen in the fall and winter as COVID, if COVID comes back, what, what's going to happen? Uh, we're hoping to cap these groups at 8 to 10 uh, not including children, and, and so that this is going to be a group of people that you're going to be able to do life with, even if we shut down again. Now, I'm praying that doesn't happen, uh, but in order to get a good community, if we're, not be able, if we're not able to do this, which, by the way, like, this is what a packed house looks like. Davey was just telling me that earlier. This is what a packed house looks like in the Majestic nowadays. Uh, and, and so um, this is going to be a way to provide community, and also uh, it's, it's going to be a way to build each other up in our discipleship. Um, so I encourage you, as the email goes out tomorrow, that you choose one. Uh, let, your, let us or your leader know if you plan to uh, be a participant in that group through Zoom, because that's going to free up a spot uh, in the in-person gathering. And I would also encourage you that if, uh, if you think, well, there's, just, there's too many people and not enough spots that you come talk to us. Don't, don't use that as an excuse not to sign up. Or if you sign up and, and everything is full, come talk to us. We, we want to, if possible, provide another community group for you if we don't have enough, okay? So, so communicate with us, and, and we'll do our best to do all this, and, and, and uh, we'll love one another well, and we're praying that this would unify us in Christ together as we're caring for one another in our discipleship, in our, in our meals together, and in even the way we learn learn how to tell our story as the gospel intersects with it, okay? So uh, let me know if you have questions afterwards or Davey, um, and, and, and we'll work together to make this a year that the Lord is uniting us. So speaking of uniting us, that we're, in a, we're starting a four-part series this morning called Unity in Diversity. <clears throat> um, this title is not original with me. Um, and yet I thought, as, and the elders, as we talked together, we thought as, as this year has just revealed some things, not just about our congregation, but about people in general, is that um, we need to think about how we're unified in Christ as a people and how that will help us interact with one another as we have diverse opinions about uh, so many things, right? You heard me pray about an election season. I I'm sure there are lots of opinions about this coming election season. Lots of opinions about, uh, e e even as we talked about before, how we handle the, the pandemic. And e even in church, how we, how we deal with one another uh, as we're... Uh, have diverse giftings and opinions. So how do we do that? Well, the title of our sermon this morning is One in Christ, the foundation or basis of our unity. Are we unified? And what is that unifying thing? Well, I'm going to argue that it's in Christ. Now, this is a topical sermon. And if you've been here for any length of time, even before I got here, the pattern has been to be expositional, and that is to work through a book of the Bible uh, sequentially and, and mine it for what it's worth. This is, this is more topical. We hope for it to be expositional in the sense that this is what the Bible is saying about this particular topic, but we're going through lots of different with different passages, and, and we're bringing them together and saying, what is this talk, what, how is this teaching us about our unity in Christ, okay? So as we enter in, I want you to think of an event. What is one event 
that brings different kinds of people together. They come united for one purpose. They set their politics, their religion aside to unite on one thing. Even people from different cultures and countries come together for this one thing. Anyone guess what it is? What was it? No one wants to say. <laughs> it's, it's sports, of course, right? <laughs> Everyone wanted to give the Sunday school answer and, and, and say it's church, but it's, it's obviously it's sport. You know, one day during the week, we're all Seahawks fans, right? <laughs> Sorry, Matt Munger, or... <laughs> <laughs> We're already not unified here this morning. <laughs> One summer, every four years, we're all Americans rooting for the USA, right? Unless you're from a different country. Yes, and every fall, nearly everyone in Corvallis puts on orange and black and hopelessly cheers for the team that unites us in the joy of victory and the agony of defeat. Sports can be a major unifying event, bringing different people together for causes that are greater than themselves. I wonder, what would it be like if we always got along the way we do when we're cheering for our team? What if we always picked each other up after we lost and gave joyful shouts of victory when we win? Enjoying each other's victories because they're genuinely our victories. And crying with one another over their defeats because their defeats are genuinely our defeats as well. What would that be like? And isn't there something in you that wants that? That kind of camaraderie and friendship that that's unites us for something bigger than ourselves? There is something in sports that genuinely, deeply resonates in us because I believe that we were created, I think the Bible teaches us that we were created for a diverse unity, a unity in diversity. Now, sometimes we mistake that unity and diversity. We mistake the unity for unanimity or uniformity or sameness. That's not what God made us for. God didn't make us to have all the exact same opinions or personalities or giftings. God made us different in order to reflect the, the greatness and magnitude of the triune God. God is triune. He's one God united in three persons, diverse and in creating us in his image, he's created us for a diverse unity. And sports, I think, taps into that desire for, uh, that desire that, that he created us with. And, and without diminishing anything that sports does, I must tell you that sports is not the only way or even the best way to realize this unity that we are created for, this diverse unity. I think the church is the one place on earth where we are meant to experience it. So if you wanted to say church, but we're like, oh, I'm not sure because it doesn't quite sound right, I think that was in you because God created the church to bring this together. It will not fully ever be, re it will not fully be reconciled in this life in perfection until we are resurrected and glorified. But... The church is meant to be an outpost of heaven, friends. It's meant to reflect what we were created to be and will be. We were created for union with God and with others. And that unity was lost in the fall. It was regained in redemption and will finally be realized at the end of time in the restoration of all things. Those, are, those will be our four, four, the four pegs will hang all of our thoughts on this morning. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. In creation, we see how we were made for diverse unity. In the fall, we will see how we lost this unity. 
In redemption, we will see this unity regained in Christ. And in restoration, we will see how God is unifying all things in himself, to himself, in Christ. So first, in creation, the one God brings diverse unity in creation. I was noticing on the handout that um, there was a choose-your-own-preposition. So uh, (laughs) it should be the one God brings unity in creation, okay? How how we were made for diverse unity. And what what I mean by diverse unity is that human beings were made in God's image and therefore have significance and value because of it. However, we were, we were all made different. Did, have you noticed? God made us different. And those differences, I am arguing through Genesis that was read earlier, are intentional and good. This isn't just a sermon on male and female differences, even though you may have thought that from the scripture reading. This is how God made us mankind as different and therefore good. It was intentional and good. God himself is the one God in three persons, like I said before. He is a tri-unity. Westminster Shorter Catechism says, uh, verse question six says it like this. It asks and answers, how many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So God is one in purpose and essence. So God is is unified in his purpose. As Father, Son, and Spirit, they don't have different purposes. They have one purpose. They're also equal in essence, that that all of them have the same qualities. They all have omniscience. They all have omnipresent. They all are omnipresent. They all are all of these things that make up God. And yet there are three. They are different persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They have different roles. And while the word Trinity is not used in the Scripture, we understand each person to be present in the Scriptures. So as a matter of good and necessary consequence. We use the word Trinity, and it's, it's right to use it, even though it's not a biblical word. God is one in three distinct persons. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. You notice that when, typically when I end our services, I, read, or I, I recite 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of who? God and the fellowship of who? The Holy Spirit. This is Paul telling us that God is Trinity and as Trinity, he is working in our salvation and in all things. The triune God creates. Okay, so this triune God is, has always been triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he, he has in time created us. And when he created us, if you notice during the reading, he created us. How did he create us? In whose image did he create us? In his own image. Therefore, we are image bearers of God. And did you notice as Ethan read that what he said about his work in Genesis 131? He came to the end of it. He created everything, the heavens, the earth, the oceans, all things. And then he created the crown of his creation was man. And what did he say after it was all done, right before he rested? It is very good. It's very good. Just the way it's supposed to be. And if you read chapter 2, which is a retelling of the creation story, uh, of mankind, you'll, you would have noticed that 2.18 tells us that before everything was very good, as it sort of goes back into the creation story and focuses on, on man and Adam and Eve, uh, in verse two, or chapter 2, verse 18, it tells us that before everything was very good, that something was not good. And the thing that was not good, that man was alone. 
Every time God had Adam, Adam had the animals come in front of him to, to name him, or he went out to name them however it worked, Adam would have been reminded there's a male and a female, uh, there's companionship, they're, they're, they're together, uh, and I don't have that. He would have been reminded that he was alone, and that was not good. That finally God put him to sleep. And he took a rib from his side and, and made a woman. And this is, we believe this to be literally true. There really was an Adam and an Eve, and God really made the world like this. And Adam comes to the, and well, he wakes up from whatever anesthesia God gave him or whatever, and he beholds woman, and he says, now finally, this is flesh of my flesh. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Finally, I have someone to complete me. Someone who understands me. Someone who, who is like me that I can communicate with. You know, Adam, Adam was created with a need, a corresponding need to him. That was met in God creating a woman, someone who is different than him. And so we understand that as the triune God creates in his image, he created man with a need, and then he met that need by creating a woman. He made us dependent. And that's good, actually even very good, because God has then created the thing that complements, that, that completes, that, that makes us one. God made mankind dependent in two ways. He made us dependent on himself. I hope that's obvious. All of us are dependent on him for our breath, our life, and everything. But he made us dependent in another way, and that is he made us dependent on one another. It's not good to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. We're not only dependent, though, friends. We are also, the triune God created us to be diverse. And I just, just walking through this logically, right? God not only made mankind dependent, he made us a diversity. It's uh, the corollary of completion is, I hope I'm using that term right, is diversity, right? And in order to complete a thing or a person, that other thing or person must be different. It must be able to complete, right? And we know this. Uh, the certain tools and fasteners both have a male and female adapter, Right? It's not complete or fit for the job unless you have both parts, unless you have complementary parts. I'm sticking with the sports analogy. The, you know, the 1990 Bulls basketball team was a complete team. It had all the parts to make up one of, if not the only or the best basketball team ever to play. So there, there was a diversity in it that made them good. You could say, you know, well, they had the greatest basketball player ever to play. Yes, but until he realized that he needed all, other, all four other guys uh, to win a championship, they didn't win, right? And so they, they, they completed each other by fulfilling their roles. So diversity is built into creation. So I hope we see that, that that's logical, like male and female, and, and yet, and, and, and want to say it's good, and yet, I also want to say that complete unanimity is bad. Did you ever read The Giver by Lois Lowry? Yeah, I'm always interested. Raise your hand if you did. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, The Giver uh, is set in a, uh, a the, well, the scene is that there's elders of this society that attempt to build a society where there's no pain or suffering, where it doesn't exist, and when it does, they push it out to the outskirts, right? They want sameness, and so they make the kids dress alike, they choose their professions, they, they choose what they do, they, they choose their language, uh, and they want it to be as uniform as possible. Well, this sameness is not good, and, and I don't want to ruin the book for you, but you'll, you'll see by the one who keeps the memories of, uh, of the of the group uh, figures this out. And it, it is not good. And we all know that, don't we? It, there are dangers in tr all of us trying to be the same. 
It was just like you growing up. You know, you, you wanted to be a rebel and you wanted to be diverse. So what did you do? You became like all the other rebels, right? You became the same as everyone else. There's dangers in this. There's, you know, outside of the church, I can think the, you know, the transgender movement. In, in giving yourself freedom to choose who you are, you end up undermining the diversity that God created in the human race. Instead of being liberating, it, it becomes enslavement, which is exactly what you would think. But it's not just outside the church, is it? This want for sameness is also inside the church, and we have seen it in our past. The church has not been, unfortunately, immune to racism. It's not seen the image of God in those of a different race. It's not followed God in, in these things. The church has also had sexist sins. It's that is not treating those of the opposite sex as valuable or, or using them as objects to consume. You know, and, and one thing that's, you know, maybe not talked about as much, and that is sectarianism. It's rejecting those for whom Christ has died because they have different opinions on non-primary matters. These are all serious sins, friends, that are in the church that we must guard against, that uh, even according to the created order, they are wrong. And everyone, Christian and non-Christian alike, we all struggle with tribalism, nationalism, even individualism that makes too much or too little of diversity with which God created the world. That's creation. God created us to, us to be not only unified, but diverse. And as we move on, we see, as I've mentioned these sins, these sins have come from something called the fall. The one man, Adam, brought disunity through sin. And you see it early on in Genesis 3, as the serpent comes in and tempts Eve, and Adam abdicates his authority, and then he eats the fruit, and he plunges the human race into sin and destruction and decay. We all feel this, don't we? Even though there's so much good in the world, like a pouring rain that clears away the smoky air, a perfectly cut and manicured lawn, the Seahawks beating the Patriots. Yeah. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Even there is so much, even though there's so much right in the world, do you ever get a glimpse that this is not all it could be? It could be a little bit better. A world where bacteria only do good and never create something like coronavirus. A world, a world where Russell Wilson never throws an interception on the two-yard line. You know, the fall, that sin that entered into the world. Romans 5, 12 tells us, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. You know, sin did not bring diversity, friends. Sin brought disunity to this earth. God brought diversity. Sin brings disunity. And the reason for the ills of the world and all the good things turned bad and evil, the reason for it all is because there is sin in the world. Adam's sin and our sin. We, we're sinners by birth and by choice. And Adam brought disunity, and, and we, all fo we, we, are all stir, we all stir up in it, and we all do it ourselves. We bring disunity ourselves. God said, do not eat of the fruit, and Adam ate. And in disobeying God's command, he turned the created order upside down. It, it brought upheaval into creation. It brought disunity and, and, and upheaval to his good world, and it brought disunity to the relationship with God, to his relationship with his wife Eve, and to this world. And so now there's suffering and death, and Romans 5 tells us that this disunity, sin, this disunity that sin brought in is far worse than the husband and wife not getting along, 
Sin brought in suffering and death for everyone. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Do you remember that, that passage in John 11 when Jesus' friend Lazarus died? There's a, a word in there that actually tells us that Jesus was actually probably angry. It, Jesus is moved in, in, and even to tears, but there's an anger in his movement because something is upside down. Something's not right. Even with all the beauty, at the end of the day, there's an intrusion into this good place, and that's death and suffering. If you read along in the Genesis story, uh, it doesn't take long from God creating everything good to man sinning to chapter four where there's murder and violence. They're, they're commonplace by chapter six. You know, the first brotherly act is not of brotherly love, but of envy and murder. And Cain murders his brother out of envy, and God says, where is your brother? And he says, where, am I my brother's keeper? And the obvious answer is, yes, you are your brother's keeper, Cain. It's his blood that's crying from the grave that, contend, that condemns you. And that's Genesis 4. And as early as Genesis 4, and on into Genesis 6, 11 through 13, evil and violence fill the earth. And God is so holy, he just, he can't let it pass. And Genesis 6, 11 says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And God ends up destroying the earth with a flood, but he saves one family inside the ark as they come through the dangers of the flood and destruction. They come out on the other side and Noah and his family are saved and so we are saved. And yet, as soon as he comes out, Noah sins. Man is meant to bring glory through worship, through love of God and fellow image bearers. Instead, he brings hate and suffering and death. He gets drunk off the boat. Instead he, of building, he destroys. Instead of filling, he empties. Instead of tending, he consumes. And don't you feel that way, friends, with the man-made things that leave you feeling empty instead of filled? Consumed instead of built up? Like social media, I, I'm sorry to like, be the old guy who pounds on social media, but I've seen it do enough destructive things, even in a short time, uh, this, this platform actually, I think, was created to connect people. It had good intentions. But instead, it has caused vicious character destruction and emotional hurt in many ways. I'm not saying get off social media necessarily, but I'm saying don't you see how good things are turned bad so easily? Verbal murder, objectification of bodies, destruction of relationships through the malice of words, and it's not just out there, friends. Christians do the same thing online. We weren't meant for that. Let me ask you something. The more time you spend on social media or online or in the news, are you more suspicious or less suspicious of people based on those interactions? Are you more or less willing to give someone the benefit of the doubt about their decisions regarding the race question? Are you more or less willing to talk to those you suppose you disagree with about the pandemic or scamdemic, depending on which camp you're in? Are you more or less likely to question someone's allegiance to Christ based on their particular political party? Now, depending on how you answer those questions, you can see the fall has made a mess of things. It's made a mess of us. This is what sin does, friends. 
It blinds us to the realities all around us. It tells us that what we are doing is going to make us happy. And that we are the center of the universe. That, that we, that we, meaning, uh, that we can get meaning apart from the one who created us for himself. And I hope it's clear that if we are going to be unified, not just as a church, but as a people, if, if we're going to get unity back that was lost in the fall, there is no hope apart from God doing it. That's what the fall does. It brings no hope. It makes you think you can be your own God. It makes you think you can create your own meaning and universe. Is there any hope that God will bring unity back to his creation? And that brings us to very good news, friends. That brings us to redemption. The one man, Jesus, brings unity through redemption. You can read about it in, in all through Romans, and Romans 3 and 5 and 6. Uh, you know, but the word redemption is, is a buying back or setting free from. You know, theologically, that redemption uh, of a person is the setting free from slavery to sin. Romans 6, 17 tells us that we were once slaves to sin. And this redemption, the buying back, is itself a setting free from that sin. It's a freedom that restores. And it's doing something to your soul. It restores you back to a relationship with God. And it is restoring you to a relationship with other people, men and women. It is, it is making all things new. It was making you as you were created to be. So that in the new heavens and new earth, when we're all restored, there will be no misuse of social media. There will be no misuse of the internet. But now, God is in the, pro he has restored us, he has justified us in Jesus Christ, and is restoring us to the full image of God. But because we're all in Adam, by birth and by choice, Romans 5, 12, we must have a second Adam to bring us back. Who is that? The second Adam is Jesus Christ. Listen to Romans 5. Spell it out for us. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. As you see, Adam brought death. He brought destruction to this world. And we all bring it in our own sins and, and perpetuate it. But the one man, Jesus Christ, brought so much more. He's not just restoring us back to innocence. He's bringing life and peace. He's making us just with God. He's justifying those of you who have repented of your sins and turned to Christ for salvation. He counts you as righteous as his own son. That's amazing. He imputes Christ's own righteousness to you. So how did he do this? Let's walk through this again really quickly. How did the second Adam, he had to take our place 
He, he, he would have to make us righteous. So how did he do it? The Gospels introduced this man, Jesus Christ, in great detail to, to persuade us that Jesus was the second Adam, that he was God come in the flesh. Mark 1.1 tells us, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is telling us right from the beginning, I can't wait to get back to Mark. He's telling us right from the beginning, something new is happening. God came down to earth. John 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God? The message was God? Who was this word? It was Jesus. And we know that, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. In order to reverse what the first Adam did and undo what he had done, Jesus, the second Adam, had to be both God and man. And the Gospels are clear about that. The epistles are clear about that. How did he do that? He, who, who was he? You know, the confessions, the creeds and confessions, which I encourage you to study, tell us that he was truly God and truly man. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, tell us how, kind of how this happened. And he's telling the, you know, interestingly, he's telling the Philippian church to be unified. You guys need to be unified uh, in your city. And he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. How, how did he do that? Well, he emptied himself. What does that look like? So he, did he get rid of his glory? No, he, he emptied himself by adding, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, he became a man. Being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the second Adam who's taking on humanity. That's who he was. But what did he do? We talk, I hope you see we talk about this every week, the gospel. What did he do? He lived a perfect life through thought, word, and deed. I don't know if you've thought about that, but have you ever thought about your own thoughts, words, and deeds through the week? Uh, what do you catch yourself thinking about when no one's around? What do, you, what do you catch yourself talking to yourself about? Jesus Christ lived a perfect life in thought, word, and deed. He, secondly, he suffered the wrath of God through his death in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He lived, he died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead. A perfect sacrifice was accepted by God. And then he ascended to the Father. Now that's a summary of the good news. It is finished. There's nothing left for you to do. Nothing at all. There is no work left for you to do to be justified in God's sight. Jesus has done it. And he's left us to, to work in sanctification, but even that is guaranteed for us. He's, he's guaranteed that we will be glorified. Read Romans 8, 29 through 30. He's finished everything that needs to be done for us. But he's also doing something now. This work of redemption is happening now. And, and what I want to remind us of is, is that he's created us diverse but unified for, for unity. He has made it so our unity with each other, the person sitting next to you and the person on the other row, you know, that you haven't probably ever talked to or haven't talked to in a really long time, the, he has made our unity as a people of God based in our unity with him. See, that redemption has placed us into Christ, the scriptures tell us. Read, I encourage you to read Ephesians this afternoon and see how many times it says we are in him. 
when we believe, repent of our sins, and turn to him, we are put in him. So that when God sees us, he actually sees Christ. That's our connection. We're co-heirs. We, we are found in him. He unifies us. Listen to Romans 6. Talk about this. Those who by faith are justified, so imputed righteousness, by grace are immersed into the body of Christ. They're immersed into the body of Christ. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? That is, when we believe on Christ, we are joined to him, and the benefits of his death are, are ours. We, we were buried, therefore, with him in, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united to him, with him, in a death like his, shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, <coughs> excuse me, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't you see, friend, when you put your trust in Christ, you are united to him. You died with him. When he rose, you, you rose with him. All of those benefits are yours. He's making us one. Ephesians 2 is telling us similar things. When you, while you were dead, in, he made you alive together with him, seated us with him in heavenly places. He, he says it. Do you, you, you see? And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses, it says, made us alive together with who? Christ. By grace you've been saved. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared that we should walk in them. He makes us one by applying this redemption to our hearts. Okay. Here it is. He... He does this. As he replies, applies the uh, redemption, he places us into the body of Christ. And you can read about it in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. When he, when he tells us that what he did in redemption was to make two men, Jews and Gentiles, one person in Christ. I mean, just, you think about... Uh, Think about it this way. Uh, Republican and Democrat in, in 2020. Far right and far left. That's as about as, that's quite, not quite as different as Jews and Gentiles. Can you imagine? Far right and far left made one in Christ. Do you ever see it happening? Jesus said, God said through his word that in Jesus, it's more radical than that. People who are so different from each other have become one in Christ. And this is the way he made it to be. He's done it by 
tearing down the wall. And he, he's done it through the work of Christ. This is our basis for our unity. We are placed in this family. A vital connection is our basis and foundation for our unity of one another. We don't just set aside our opinions or our personality. No, we, we hold on to them, but we come together as one and we talk. I, I can imagine a conversation like this. But I, I don't think there are political divisions necessarily in our congregation, um, but I'm just using this as an example because I know it's going on right now in the world. I imagine after church, we go outside and one Christian says to another, hey, yeah, I'm thinking about voting for Biden this year. And the other person looks kind of shocked, like, oh, really? Tell me about that. Uh, because I, I just, like, I have lots of concerns, and I would like to hear what you have to say about why you're voting for him. And the other Christian says, sure, let me, let's, why don't we go to lunch and talk about that? They go to lunch and they talk and he said, well, I want to hear why you're voting for Trump because I have all of these concerns about him and maybe we could talk through some of that stuff. And in love, we say, hey, brother, you know, I think we're going to have to agree to disagree, but you know what? You are my brother or sister in Christ and we're going to worship together for all of eternity and we're going to be around a throne where Trump and Biden are going to be totally forgotten about at one time, but we'll hold these differences and we'll just love each other. That's the kind of love I imagine happening in a church that's unified in the gospel. Uh, a church that says, you know what, I have some serious disagreements in this, this church about said issue, maybe racism or, or, or whatever, but listen, I want to talk about it and let's love one another. You know, Paul, as he gets to the end of his letter in Ephesians, he says, as a prisoner of Christ, he's urging them, the Ephesian Christians, just think of yourself, him writing to you. I urge you, branch, church, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling that you've been called with all humility. That is thinking low, having a low opinion of your own opinion and gentleness. I disagree, I feel sharply about this, and yet I'm gonna to talk to you in gentleness and with all patience, sort of long suffering that God has given us with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Just coming alongside and bearing in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Do you know that we don't create unity in our body? That has been created by God in Jesus Christ, given by the spirit in the bond of peace. That's given us. So when we're disunified about any issue among us, what we're saying is we're not acting like what God has made us to be. That's why God hates disunity. He hates dissension. He hates people that, when people stir up dissension among one another, he wants us to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That means being able to say, you know what, I could be wrong. That person said that, but here's my first inclination is to believe this, but I'm not gonna believe that about them. I am not going to go talk to someone else about their opinions about what they've said to me until I talk to them first. Even if we couch it in prayer requests, hey, I have a prayer request for this friend who did blah, blah, blah. We don't do that. In the bond of peace with the eagerness, we're, we're ready, we're chomping at the bit to go after them and talk to them. And when we can't, we let love cover a multitude of sins. You know what this means for us, friends? That we have union in Christ and that he's doing it in the church. Uh, it, it means for us that God is making all things new. He's returning things to the way they're supposed to be. You know, in Galatians 3, 26 through 29, he tells us that we're all sons of God, sons and daughters of God. All of us are sons and daughters of God. For as many of you are baptized into Christ, because there's neither Jew nor Greek, 
slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to promise. We all have value and significance because of our connection to Jesus. There's no Jew or Greek. There's no tribalism, okay? It doesn't, he doesn't obliterate our distinctions, but they do not merit us significance. We have significance because of our connection to Christ. There's no slave or free. Class distinctions. They're not obliterated. They're poor and wealthy among us. They're still among us. But none of us is saying that what, anything we have is our own. We were bought with a price. Our class does not merit us significance. There's no fee, male or female. He does not obliterate our sex or our gender. He, we maintain it, but now we do not use it to rule harshly over one another or abdicate our role, our God-given roles. We are one in Christ and have significance because he not only made us in his image, but he is restoring that image in himself. When will it be restored, finally? The one God is unifying all things in Christ. Okay, I want you to imagine with me for the last time, I'm almost done, the largest sporting event ever. And there are some college football stadiums that hold over 100,000 people. Can you imagine that? How, how many does uh, Reese's uh, Stadium? Oh, man, know your congregation, Doug. Uh, it holds a lot. I don't think it holds 100,000, but maybe it does. It's a lot of people. And I'm sure that there are venues bigger than that. Okay, so do you have it in your mind? Largest sporting event ever. Now I want you to imagine something far greater than that. Where myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands gather around the one that made you for diverse unity. Multitudes upon multitudes are gathered around the one whose, whose desire is their heart. He is their heart's desire. They're gathered around him saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to bring blessing and honor and glory and power and might. And in Revelation 21, 5, 7, this is... John telling us that this is going to be our reality. With all of our diversity, with all of our, our sins done away with, our diversity not done away with, but our sins done away with, with all our diversity, we will gather around the throne and, and he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these are the words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. At the end, God will be with us, and we will be his people, and he will receive the glory due his name. We will be worshiping him with more enthusiasm than any sports event you've ever been a part of, soccer notwithstanding, we will be worshiping God. He is making all things new. This is where we are headed, friends. Pray that we as a church ask God to help us live out this reality, this diverse unity here in Corvallis and wherever God puts us. So be it. Amen. Father, we ask that you would finish this work in our hearts. God, would you, in your kindness, would you unify us? God, we ask that you would help us con confess the sins that have caused disunity among us or with other Christians outside this body. Will you forgive us for Jesus' sake? God, will you help us to strive for unity, to be 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God, would you help us to put aside our pride? Would you help us, oh God, to be open with one another in ways that you have opened up to us? Lord Jesus, we pray that you would do this for your glory, because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.